want to make a podcast, Spotify has got a platform that lets you make one super easily, distribute it everywhere, and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&As and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel so supported in the creation and distribution of my show. Spotify for Podcasters hosts masterclasses, office hours, and more to help creators develop and fine-tune their skills. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. The first thing I'm thinking is like, this is so bad. And then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire. Bullets everywhere. And he's hit. He falls to the ground. Somebody grabs my legs and my um, shoulders. He's, it's a young American man. And he knows my name. And he says, Jessica, it's okay. You're safe now. We're the American military. We're going to take you home. And one of them said something to me to the effect of like, you're always touting us as the saviors and badasses, but you're a badass too because you spent 93 days out there. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to Back to the Show. Thank you so much for clicking on this episode. I had the opportunity to host a conversation with the wonderful Jess Buchanan. Jess is a teacher, author, humanitarian, speaker, and survivor. In 2011, while on a routine field mission in Somalia, working as a educator for her non-governmental organization, Jess was abducted at gunpoint and held for ransom by a group of Somalian pirates for 93 days. In this episode, we dive into the kidnapping and Jess's mental process to survive such a traumatic situation. 93 days after the abduction, Jess was rescued by the elite SEAL Team 6. Jess went on to write a New York Times best-selling book called Impossible Odds, which recaps the entire kidnapping and rescue story. Jess recently published her second book called Deserts to Mountaintops, which is a collection of memoirs by Jessica and 25 other women who have experienced hardship and are recounting their stories to help other women. During our episode today, we talk about, yes, the kidnapping, yes, the rescue, but we also get into the depths of trusting your intuition versus intrusive thoughts. We talk about your relationship to self, how to come back to yourself after such a traumatic experience. Jess has quickly become one of my favorite people. Jess has kind of become somewhat of a mentor to me and I get to work with her in a very cool and close capacity, which we'll talk about soon one day. But for now, I'm super excited to share Jess's story here on the podcast here with you. Jessica Buchanan, welcome to 8020. So I want to start at kind of the beginning of your young professional journey. So I'm a teacher by profession. Um, I've always said I take the scenic route. So and I think I went to college like four or five times and kept dropping out because I couldn't figure out what I wanted to uh, do. But I finally landed on just getting a teaching degree. Um, I liked kids and I, I like being with people. And I figure I could always feed myself and keep a roof over my head. Um, and so at, at the end of my 
degree program I had to do student teaching and I went to school outside of Philly and I was looking around and it just didn't I didn't see like I didn't feel like going to just like a regular public school I wanted to do something different um, and I ended up getting a student teaching position at an international school in Nairobi Kenya it was great. Loved it. They offered me a full-time position. And so I took that. So I started really my like true professional career teaching fourth grade in Nairobi for like kids from all over the world. And it was awesome. I had so much fun. Um, and then I met this cute Swedish guy a couple months into my teaching career uh, at a trashy nightclub in Nairobi when I was out with some teacher friends. Um, and that was like 16 years ago or something and we've been talking ever since and his name is Eric and um he was there in Nairobi like based in Nairobi uh, but working for a humanitarian aid organization that took him all over like Somalia and Zimbabwe and all these other places and to me he was like working on prison reform and judicial systems and I just was like oh my god like this is the hottest thing ever and so <laughs> like, <laughs> like let I, I need to get to know you and um, so we ended up dating and falling in love and getting married a year and a half later um, and I'm, you know, I'm still teaching, things are humming along. And uh, he was actually being transitioned into another organization where he was going to be based in Hargeisa, Somaliland, which is the northern part of Somalia. Um, if I don't think a lot of people are familiar with like the, the geography of Somalia, but it, it for reference, if you look at um, a map of Africa, it's the horn. So it looks like a seven. And so we were going to be uh, stationed at the top. And then um, as you go further down, as you go further south, it gets a little bit more precarious in terms of security, but we were pretty safe up in the northern part. And we didn't want to have a long distance marriage. So um, I quit my teaching job and moved up there with him. I didn't have a job. I was just like a wife, which was super weird. And because no one goes to Hargis, so without a job like you go there to work um like expat ways and so um that felt a little flat and weird and and um before I knew it I, I started like just doing some tutoring and stuff for some local refugees that were living and working on our compound and um started with kids and then before you knew it I had like a dining room full of grown men from Ethiopia who wanted to learn English and and then word got out that there was a teacher in town and that spun into um, working for the Ministry of Education and United Nations and then eventually landing a position for the Danish demining group which was the mine action unit at the D Danish Refugee Council as their education advisor it was like one of those things you know where I landed in a job that I never thought I'd be qualified for and uh, I know it's not like everybody's dream to live and work in a place like Somalia but oh my gosh I loved it so much I felt like the work was really meaningful and exciting and I was traveling all over Africa and um it was it was incredible so traveling to specific places to do trainings was nothing new no, I, I was the regional education advisor. So my portfolio included uh, Southern Sudan, Northern Uganda, uh, Kenya, all over Somalia. Um, and I think that was it at the time. I'd been to like Rwanda and other parts of Uganda as well. Um, but no, like I was a roving staff. So that was part of my job. So when you took the trip, which we'll get into in just a second, this was a training you were headed to the southern part of Somalia, is mm -hmm, that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the Green Line, 
what that is? Yeah. So at the time, and I, you'll have to forgive me, I'm not like up on any kind of like updates of how things have transitioned in that part of the world. But um, at the time, this is 2011, um, the particular city that I was being required to travel to was Galkayo, which was uh, north of Mogadishu, which is probably the city that most people can reference to Somalia because you see it in the news from time to time mainly because bad things security wise are happening there. The, the town was basically governed, if you will, by two different uh, clans and they were opposing and often uh, in conflict. And so one clan had, you know, responsibility or uh, one part of town belonged to them. And then another part of town belonged to another clan. And there was this like supposed to be just like this, um, this line where uh, it was like Switzerland, right? You know, so, um, but the Northern clan couldn't cross into the Southern clan's area and vice versa. So we had offices in both parts of the, the town and we had separate staff who belonged to those particular clans. So we were essentially running two different operations in the same town because of these clan distinctions. Um, and in order for us as expats to cross over into the southern part over the green line, we would take a convoy of vehicles, get out at this imaginary green line that was um, Switzerland, and uh, then cross over by foot because cars couldn't crossover and then get in another vehicle uh, convoy of vehicles that were registered to that part of town wow okay so it was a major security yeah it was a production okay so when you're headed to this particular training how are you feeling Mm. well I had I had a lot of apprehension about the entire trip um I had actually canceled it twice before uh because there were like some very significant security issues like I think before the second time I canceled a bus full of women and children had Mm -hmm. been blown up by an imposing like the the conflicting clan and again it wasn't like the foreigners were the the target but you know you just never know what's going to happen in a place like this right and so I called my colleague who's a Danish gentleman who was um heading up that particular field office and said you know voice my apprehension and he was like this is the third time you've canceled you need to get down here and do your job or else like I'll go talk to your boss and tell them that you're not Mm -hmm. capable of doing your job and um so you know I mean on one hand yes this was part of my job description but on the other hand I didn't feel safe and I didn't feel good about it um so I felt bullied and backed into a corner and I talked to my husband who you know had been working in the area for a very long time and um, you know, I followed all of the protocols for my organization, like they're in connection and communication with the UN, like everything, like all the boxes have been checked to ensure that this trip would go smoothly. So I just felt like I was being paranoid because basically that's what was being told to me. Um, and so I ignored my apprehension and got on a UN plane and, and um, traveled South. Um, the, the training was only supposed to be three days, two days in the Northern office. So I didn't have to move cause that's where I was staying. Um, and then we would have to cross that green line to get into the Southern office on the third day. And that's what I was really worried about because if something's going to happen, it's going to happen while you're in transit. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
there have been countless times in my life where I've been faced with tough choices or just having trouble navigating what I'm supposed to do next in my life. And a big part of my healing journey has been through therapy. So whether you're dealing with tough decisions around your career or relationships or really anything, therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you're navigating your life. For me, it's helped to really just like realign with the best version of myself, which then in turn helps to give me clarity to make good decisions. Trusting yourself is one of those things that you kind of have to learn over time and practice makes perfect. So the more that you practice it, the easier it gets. And therapy has really, really helped me with this process. It's also really helped me to learn good coping mechanisms, how to be a good active listener, and really just like empower me overall to be a better version of myself. I think everyone should go to therapy. It's just such a great way to add tools into your toolbox. It's also cool to be able to talk to someone who is kind of outside of your circle of people. It's great to have friends that can listen or family members that can listen, but it's even better to have someone who's kind of removed from your life and and can just kind of help to guide you without really being attached, if that makes sense. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I definitely recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be really convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire. You get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can actually switch therapists at any time for no additional cost. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash 8020 today and get 10% off of your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 8020. So we get through the first two days of training. It's great. Everything's fine. And um, then the night before we're to move to the third, to the third day of training to the second office. And um, Paul and I were friends and um, we stayed up really late, like singing and playing guitar and drinking. And, and I went to bed, you know, just feeling kind of crappy, but I had these nightmares like all night long. And I'm not like one of those people who proficiently like, you know, dreams. And it's very odd if I have, like, I remember my dreams and um, they were very specific in, in my nightmare we were, our compound had been taken over by pirates and we were being kidnapped. And so I woke up the next morning drenched in sweat. Obviously I haven't slept, like slept. Um, I think I'm like kind of hung over, you know, and, and I remember sitting on the edge of my bed in real like contemplation of whether or not I wanted to, to do this and by this mean leave the, the compound and go to the Southern office. And I can remember also like thinking, man, I wish I had just gotten like food poisoning or something so I could just like be sick and, mm-hmm. and stay in bed and, and have a real like reason not to leave and get up and go to the bathroom. And I look at myself, I like wash my, my face and I look at myself in the mirror and it was a very defining moment um, in my life, that moment by myself uh, looking myself in the eye in the mirror. Um, and I said out loud, like, do you want to do this? And I knew the answer was no, I did not want to do this. Um, and I kept thinking about like all of the, you know, arrangements that had been made. I just explained how difficult it was to like 
procure something like this and all of the people that were waiting on me and the staff and they were having a big goat rice feast at the end of the, you know, it was a big deal for, for the, the expats to come in and, and, and I needed to get my job done. And I think by the end of that, like mental tug of war that I was playing with myself, I was, I just decided that I was being an inconvenience and being paranoid again, because what's the worst that's going to happen. Right. Like I'm a school teacher who grew up in the middle of a cornfield in Ohio. I'm white. I'm privileged. I grew up in the church. Like nothing bad's going to happen to me. Um, and, and, and then I walked away and, um, it changed, changed the course of my life forever. So that mirror moment, you knew in your gut what was about to happen. I didn't know specifically what was going to happen, but I knew that something wasn't right. And I knew that I did not want to leave the compound. My relationship with myself wasn't strong enough to trust myself Mm. and to put my foot down. So I go, we get across the green line, we go to the office, we do our trainings, everything's fine, have our lunch. And then it's time to head back. And I'm like, I can see the finish line, right? You know, like I, I'm going to go back. I'm going to do my workout. We're going to have dinner. We probably have a little more wine left, you know, like just that I'd smuggled in because it's a dry country. And I notice that the security advisor, a local guy named Abdi Rizak, he's like on his phone and then he's getting off and he's saying, we're ready. No, we're not ready. Wait. And then we wait 20 minutes and then it's time. Like there's all this back and forth, you know, when there should just be a convoy of land cruisers come in, pick us up, you know, like this is how this functions. This is how this works. And, and it's, it was like stops and starts, but you know, it's not my home base. So I deferred to, to Paul. He's like, you know, talking to his staff and whatnot, not really paying attention. Finally, the vehicles do come in. There are three land cruisers, there are armed guards in the front, armed guards in the, the back. And then Paul and I are in the middle vehicle with a driver and then the security advisor. And we pull out through the gates of the compound and we're driving through town and we're not driving quickly because there are people all over the place and there are goats running around. And, you know, like it's probably like if you've seen a movie, it's, it really does look like that. And we're driving for maybe like 10 minutes through town. And then somehow a, another land cruiser comes like rushing past us on the right and, and veers to the left to, to stop us. And they splash mud up all over the windows and the windshield as they do that because it was the rainy season. And I can't see out the window. The windshield is covered in mud. And I'm like, what a jerk. Like who drives like that? And um, then I hear the crack of the butt of an AK-47 on the car hood. Um, and Abdi Rizak is sitting on my right. I'm in the back seat on the left and his door is pulled open. And um, there's a very angry Somali man standing there. He's got an AK. He's dressed in a police uniform and he pulls Abdi out of the seat. He like, you know, like out of his seatbelt, like yanks him out of the car, slams him to the ground, hits him in the head with the gun and then gets in. And I can remember having like these feelings of like, feeling sorry for him. Like, Oh my God, is he okay? Um, and then the, the armed man puts his AK to my head and starts screaming at the driver to drive. And so we take off through town and, and we head South and, and we're like up on two wheels and then we slam down and like, we're up again. Like I've never been in a car situation like this um and and Paul is in the front seat and he's begging the driver to slow down because we're gonna flip 
And if we flip, we're, we're going to die. Like we're out in the middle of the desert of Somalia. Like, like there's, we're not going to survive this. And, um, I'm just like thinking two very basic fundamental thoughts there. And, and, and the first thing I'm thinking is like, this is so bad, whatever this is happening right now I have no frame of reference for it like I have nothing to compare it to I have nothing to reach for in terms of what to do or or how to survive it I am it's just bad um and then the second thing I'm thinking on repeat in a loop is like however this thing turns out like if they just stop right now and take all our stuff and kick us out and we can walk back to town like whatever, whatever happens, my life has fundamentally changed forever from this moment on. Nothing will ever be the same again. And we keep driving. We drive for hours. We stop. We change vehicles several times. Um, we change direction. Um, oftentimes different people are getting in the vehicles. More vehicles join the convoy. Um, everybody is heavily armed wearing like belts of bullets, um, machine guns, like so large, they don't fit in the vehicles. So they're hanging out the windows. Um, and I remember very distinctly before the sun went down, Paul turns around to look at me, I guess, check on me. And I just mouth to him, what is happening? Mm. And he looks at me like, like he feels sorry for me. And he just shakes his head and he says, we're being kidnapped. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to have a, like, I, I'm going to have a panic attack. Like right here, like I'm going to, I like can feel it like yeah. building, right? Like I'm, I'm start going to start hyperventilating because nothing in my life has prepared me for something like this. Did your NGO give you any prior knowledge, training, or anything for this type of situation? I did take uh, like an internal heat training, which is hostile environment awareness training. Um, most of the times, these organizations will outsource that to like a security company, but they did it internally. Like the security advisor, I guess, thought he was equipped to do that. I do remember, you know, it was like three days. Most of it was about CPR and first aid. And they did a little like reenactment of a kidnapping. I remember, and, and that information did come in handy. Um, I remember two pieces of information from that training. The first one was, if you can live through the first 48 hours, then you probably have a good chance of surviving. Was that piece of information critical to, I guess, was that a tool in your, in your toolbox? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I settled on that and kept thinking like, just as the hours ticked by, like, okay, I made it through another hour. I made it through another hour. If I can just make it through 48 hours, then my chances of survival are going to be higher. I mean, who knows if that's true? I guess statistically it is true, but, um, you know, every situation is different. Right. Like there, there is not like a, a, a textbook, you know, right. for, for all of this. Um, and then the other piece of information that I remembered from the training was that I needed to have a phone number memorized because they were going to ask me to call someone. And it took like two weeks before we were able to make any kind of connection with anybody. And, and they took us out 
way out into the desert, like far away from where we were staying. Um, and put us on a satellite phone and, um, ask us to call our families. You know, I actually didn't have my husband's phone number memorized because he had all these different phones, like numbers for the different countries that he traveled, um, to. So I called my dad and his number was disconnected. Wow. And then I called my sister and her number was disconnected. And then Paul calls his wife and his daughter and both of their phone numbers are disconnected. And I'm like, what the, what the hell is going on here? Like what, like I'm, I'm feeling like personally off affronted, like how, why is everybody's phone? Like, aren't they, aren't they worried about us? Aren't they sitting by their phones waiting to hear from us? And then Paul explained to me like later, he's like, there has to be like a plan. I, they must have disconnected all the phones. Who are they? They like our organization or whoever at this point, we have no idea like who's in charge of getting us back. Um, until we were put on the phone with someone who, um, identified himself as working as a family communicator for our organization and asked us a series of proof of life calls. You know, we could, we would try to like fill in the blanks with things we'd seen in movies and things we'd read about, but we really had no idea. And and then of course I'm able to fill in the blanks in the aftermath. But yeah, my, my organization um, had a kidnapping and a ransom insurance, thank God. And so they brought in professional hostage negotiators who were working the case in conjunction with the FBI. But it was complicated because it was a Danish organization. And then you have two nationals from two different countries. You know, they put us on the phone um, to answer a series of proof of life questions because they need to make sure that we're the right hostages. Um, I didn't know until after the ordeal um, that the FBI was involved. Um, Because anytime there is a crime against a U.S. citizen, it doesn't matter where in the world they are. The FBI is the front leader um, on it. And it's really complicated because you got a Danish organization, a Danish citizen, an American citizen. Um, so it, I think they were having their own struggles on the other side. You have these proof of life calls. You said this is about two weeks into your kidnapping. Mm-hmm. What did your life look like on a day-to-day basis in the desert? I mean, it was more than anything. When I wasn't being terrorized, I was just bored. Mm-hmm. Like as bored as bored can get. Um, I, you know, I was not one of those hostages where they brought me books and I had a notebook and a pen and I could journal about what I was thinking and feeling at the time. I had nothing. I was sleeping on a mat and I eventually got a blanket. Um, but I, I mean, I had nothing, uh, nothing to do. Um, I just was relegated to a six by nine plastic mat. Um, sometimes they would let me walk in circles. I would try to like, you know, I just had to like gauge the, 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 the mood of whoever was keeping guard. You know, there were anywhere from six to like 30 guards, um, on at the camp. We moved about 50 to 60 times, you know, we could be sleeping, you know, it was on the ground out in the middle of a field. And then somebody would come and get my face and start screaming and tell me to get in, in the car, the Land Cruiser. And then we would drive for hours all night long. And then they'd stop in some like arbitrary place and tell us to go lay down and sleep. And it's the middle of the day. It's hot. Um, we were systematically starved. Um, you know, some like towards the end, it's, we started getting a routine, but we would be 
typically like given a piece of bread um, sometimes some tea to drink um, in the morning and then at the like maybe a tin of tuna a small tin of tuna in the middle of the day and um, we'd have to eat that like with our well for a while I eat it with a tampon applicator because I like I had this little powder bag or whatever cosmetic bag that they let me keep I took it out of my work bag the night of the abduction and it had like random you know weird travel stuff right like a dental floss and a couple of tampons and um but then like they do weird things where maybe I was sleeping or I had gone to a bush to use the bathroom and they would come and dig through my bag and take stuff so eventually they took my tampons because I think they didn't know what they were and so um I lost my applicator to eat my tuna with so then it's just like my hands I mean I did I felt kind of like MacGyver like and I think like (laughs) that's sort of my personality too like I'm a resourceful person and so I had like a bobby pin so I was like okay well what can I do with this bobby pin all right well I can use it as a writing utensil in the ground you know like you're or you start to go kind of crazy after a while I remembered uh, they eventually brought me a fork that I could keep in my bag and I could eat my tuna with um, but I didn't have a comb for my hair and my hair was really short then so fortunately but remember that scene in um the little mermaid where she's like with the fork she thinks it's something to comb her hair mm-hmm. I was like totally took inspiration from that movie because I was like oh well I can use this as a um as a brush as well as an eating utensil so you know just weird stupid stuff like that um they were also like little moments for me to like of pride I think for me to be like oh I I solved a problem you know because I think it's intrinsic for humans in life to be able to solve their own problems in order to feel like that's part of our survival and and I think every time I came up with against something like okay well how am I gonna how am I gonna get through this or how am I gonna solve this problem um how am I gonna stay sane today or you know whatever like anytime I could come up with something made me feel really proud of myself um and and you know mainly you know the days just were really long I sometimes would be able to sit with Paul and we would talk um, a lot of times we weren't. I mean, there were weeks where I didn't open my mouth and use my voice at all. I was put in solitary confinement, essentially, like on this edge of the camp because negotiations weren't working well. You know, nights were long and scary and cold and wet. Um, oftentimes I was worried that I was going to be assaulted in the middle of the night. Um, I was definitely like apprehended a a few times in the middle of the night. Um, And then I was regularly threatened, you know, and trying to keep my emotions um, in check was really difficult, as you can imagine. Like, I mean, if I could have sat there all day and cried, I probably would have sometimes, but they would get really aggressive when they saw me express any emotion. So I would like ask to go to the toilet, which is, you know, just to ask to leave my mat to go behind a bush to go do my business and oftentimes I would just go and like silently scream into my headscarf because I was just filled with like frustration and rage and and I didn't understand why this was happening I didn't understand why it was taking so long and um it was the hardest mental challenge of my life thus far you know and the whole the entirety of the captivity was 93 days um which 
sounds like a lot, but really in these kind of situations, it's not. I mean, these these captivities can go on for years. So I hadn't let myself get to a point where I had lost hope or I was in despair because um, I still was able to like keep pulling myself up. I knew escaping wasn't an option. We were just out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, and it's the desert. And it's, you know, upwards of like over a hundred degrees during the day. I couldn't carry enough water. Like I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where I was. Um, and I also felt like very obligated to survive for my family. Like I had just lost, we had lost my mom the year before and very suddenly, and we were all still very much grieving that loss. And I just like, couldn't add to it. You know, I felt, I kind of felt bad enough that I got kidnapped you know, like, it's not like it was my fault, but I do think I carried some guilt and some shame around it and what it was doing to my family and, and to my husband. And, and I thought, you know, like if not for anything else, I'm going to survive because I can't, I can't put them through this, like what it would mean to lose me. And I think that that propelled me forward. Um, Maybe again, because it's my personality and maybe my conditioning growing up in the church. And I don't know. I I just felt like that gave me the will I needed to survive. Do you get to talk to your loved ones? Is is it just all kind of, you know, is there an in-between person? I got to talk. Yeah, it's an in-between person, like a communicator who's just like asking questions to make sure we're still alive because negotiations aren't going to move forward if the captive is dead. Um. So they needed to make sure that they were still negotiating for live hostages. Um, And then they would pass messages. Your family wants you to know that they're okay and they're, you know, they're praying for you and, you know, whatever you say. I did get to talk to my husband once for like two minutes. It was on Thanksgiving morning and it's hard to like explain the like the situation, but basically the kidnap, like I'll call them pirates. They called themselves lots of different things, but for the most part, they landed on pirates and the pirates didn't trust the communicator. And so they wanted a family member from Paul or I to get on the phone with them to, you know, basically like assure them that the person that they were talking to was the, the communicator and the representative for the family. And so we didn't think that that was going to happen because it's not like normal standard procedure for to put family members on the phone when you have hostage negotiators who are managing this, the, the whole um, setup. Um, but they did put Eric on the phone and we have a recording of it actually. And um, I've listened to it um, and I am very like, matter of fact, and I'm very much like all business because I need them to understand exactly. I need him to understand exactly what they need to do because we need to speed this thing along. Like I need to get out of here, you know? And, um, I, and I, I do remember saying like, I, I need you to know that I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. And I love you. And we're going to get through this. Um, and that was it. There were days that I knew like mentally, like I was okay and I could make it through. Like I would sometimes I, if they would let me walk around the perimeter of the camp, I, I would take things and I would, um, take things in increments. Right. And I would be like, I'm gonna, I know I can make it 30 more days. Right. And so, but they don't know that. 
They don't know what my emotional state is and what my mental process is. For all they know, I'm like in the fetal position under a tree and about ready to give up. So I needed them to know and believe that I had enough power and strength inside myself to get through this, whatever it was going to be, because I, I needed them to be okay. So what was that mental process like for you? Well, I prayed a lot. I'm a, I'm a person of faith and my spirituality is very important to me. I was in a weird place in my spirituality. And when this happened, I was really mad about losing my mom. So like, I would say God and I weren't on great terms. Um, but we sure got, we sure got in communication <laughs> while we were out there <laughs> because I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I can see that we need to get some things straight here. Uh, I think that I'm also a person, I'm a seeker. And so I'm always looking for, maybe it's because I'm a teacher too. Like I'm always looking for the lesson. Sometimes I get tired of it, but I do ultimately, I think when things especially go awry, I'm like, okay, well, what am I supposed to be learning from this? And so I remember waking up one morning, like 45 days in or something. And um, I felt like things had started to level out a little bit. Like we had kind of a routine, right? And so I would get up when the sun came up, which was six, um, get my breakfast. We learned how to make bread in the sand. You, It's like this actually it's kind of a cool method how you can like bake bread under the sand with hot coals and stuff. And I'd have my bread and some tea and then I'd move my mat, um, from the field to under a tree where I was going to sit for the next 12 hours. And I was really into yoga at the time. And so I was like doing a lot of Ashtanga yoga. And, um, so if, if I had the strength on the mornings that I had the strength, I would try to go through like my whole series. And I remember sitting down at the end in like lotus position and I'm leaning up against this tree, this acacia tree. And I had this thought I had been planning to take some time off work after I completed this trip, you know, before all of this happened. And I'd been thinking about maybe like going and sitting in an ashram or something for three months and just taking a sabbatical and grieving. I just needed to like make space and time for my grief and kind of figure some stuff out. And um, I'm sitting there cross-legged against this tree and I had this realization that like didn't the Buddha reach enlightenment while he was sitting under a tree and then I started kind of looking around and I'm like you know from my cultural tradition Jesus didn't he wander the desert for 40 days and 40 nights like without food and water and like one by one, all these stories of like spiritual greats and saints and, and people, you know, who'd been in situations where maybe their freedom was taken away from them or they went to go wrestle it out, right? In whatever scenery that was for them, there was always this withholding of like felt needs to get really close to themselves and get close to God. And I looked around and I thought, well, you know, I mean, I'm never going to have this much time again if I get out of here and I certainly have nothing to do and I have very few distractions 
Um, cause every, like this was at a point where people would just leave me alone and, um, I don't really like to waste an opportunity. So let's dig in here. And I got really organized and I started, um, making like a work plan for myself. So like, okay, today I'm going to think about, I'm going to remember everything that happened to me. Um, starting at my very first memories when I was like four years old. And I'm going to think about like everything in such detail. Like it's almost like I'm going to relive my entire life, you know? So like I had uh, this memory of my mom taking me to the movie theater for the first time when I was four and we went to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And she had this blue sundress on with these little white flowers and her teeth were like super crooked, but also really cool. And, and the freckles on her arm, like I just got like got into it and like one by one, I just like relived these like some really hard memories right um my mom struggled with mental illness and I went through every painful moment and then every triumphant moment and 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 I went through every first date with or every date with my husband and like dissected why I responded the way you know I mean just all of it for weeks and weeks and weeks and I think what I found at the end of that, I was 32 at the time, 31, 32, is that I met myself out there. Spending all that time reflecting on all of the things that had happened to me and the choices that I had made and the people that I had loved and the people that didn't love me, it all created the person that I am up until that moment where I like rejected myself and I walked away from myself, I abandoned myself. Why did I do that? And I have this like vision of another version of myself, like walking up to me on my mat and holding out her hand to, to lead me out. Um, and what I also found is that my body was being held hostage, but my mind was actually very, very free. And so I go back to that. I don't always successfully apply it, but I go back to that time in my life as a reminder to myself that it doesn't matter what is happening, like what my circumstances are. I can, I have freedom and I have choice in my mind and no one else can control that. I'm the only one who's in charge of that. I don't know if you could see me like starting to kind of tear up there when mm. you said that you a, a version of you reached out her hand mm-hmm. and led you that picture is you know the way that I'm imagining that in my mind is just incredible it's, well I think we have to save ourselves yeah like we spend our whole lives like just in total turmoil waiting for someone or something some job some partner our dad saying that they approve of us And the whole point is that we have to like accept ourselves and, and save ourselves. And so, yes, you know, and we'll get there, but yes, I was rescued, but I was actually rescued a whole lot sooner. Mm. And I had to do that myself. You rescue yourself. That This is, you know, a process you've been mm-hmm. working through. It's incredible that you would plan to take time off to do this. Mm-hmm. That is so... I mean, I would have preferred a ashram in India, but... 
absolutely. (laughs) Here we are. (laughs) But that is so, so just weird. I know. I mean, I'm grateful that I recognized it Mm. Um, because I could have spent the time like just sitting there. I could have wasted it. Yeah. Um, And I think that that also has taught me, I think that has been a a major theme in my recovery. Mm. Like you have to make things mean something. Yeah. Otherwise they're too hard and heavy to carry. That night prior to your rescue, kind of take us through what was happening that night. What was going through your head? So I was actually really sick. I had gotten a urinary tract infection about 10 days earlier. And um, those are really uncomfortable, especially unmedicated out in the desert where there's no shower or toilet. Um, so I was in a lot of discomfort. Um, and it was moving into a kidney infection because they wouldn't bring me into medicine. They wouldn't bring out a doctor or anything like my comfort was of no consequence to them. Um, and so I had had my last proof of life call 10 days before. So actually I'd been struggling much longer than 10 days with this, probably two weeks, maybe going on three weeks. And I told the communicator on the other, you know, on, on the phone who would take the information back to the organization and our families, I listed my symptoms and said, I know this is heading into a kidney infection because I've had one before and I had to be hospitalized for a week. Um, if you guys don't get me out of here, I'm going to die and it's going to be on you. And so, um, you know, I get off the phone, not thinking that that's going to make any difference. What I don't know is that they did take that information to the FBI, um, to my doctor and then to the FBI. And then that information goes to the Pentagon, goes to the white house. Um, cause I also didn't know that president Obama was being briefed on my, uh, whereabouts in my, my state of, you know, being, um, like almost every day I go put my mat out in the middle of the field to sleep what, you know, like I do. And I fell asleep and woke up a couple hours later because I needed to be sick. And so I, there were nine guys on the ground, nine pirates on the ground that night. And usually, no, not usually every single time, every single night, there was at least one of them awake, keeping guard for the camp, making sure we didn't escape, making sure, you know, we weren't going to be attacked by another group or something. And, um, there were, they were all passed out that night, which I thought was strange. And um, I say the word toilet because that's how I asked to be excused from my mat. I didn't want anybody to think I was trying to escape. So no one would wake up. I say it a couple of times and they're all just passed out. So I pick up a small pen light and I start flashing it so that they can see that I'm here in case somebody does wake up. And I go behind a bush, do what I need to do and come back, roll myself back up on my blanket and um, try to go back to sleep in about I, I would say just like two or three minutes goes by and then the pirate on my who was sleeping on my left, I can sense, it's very dark, so I can't see anything. There's no stars or moon, but I can sense that um, he's, uh, he's like scared and he's standing and he has a his weapon and he's whisper screaming at the other guys to wake up in Somali and then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire. Holy shit. Just like, boom, 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 boom. Like just bullets everywhere and he's hit he falls to the ground all the other guys are rousing they're being shot they're falling to the ground and I'm laying there in the middle of all of it on the ground and I'm just like saying over and over oh god oh god oh god oh god oh god um because I'm thinking we're being taken by another group which was always a threat um 
and I don't have, I don't have the physical capabilities mm. of learning another group or what's going to happen to me. Um, it's kind of better, better the devil, you know, mm. um, and I'm trying to protect myself. Something grabs my legs and my um, shoulders and it tries to pull the blanket away from my face. I'm trying to hold it up. I have my hands in front of me trying to defend myself and um, I can't see anything just like black blobs kind of figures or something and there's one that's down kind of on my level and he's um he's it's a young american man and he knows my name and mm -hmm. he says jessica it's okay uh, you're the american or you're safe now we're the american military um we're gonna take you home and he helps me sit up and all I can say is that like my eyes are kind of adjusting is you're American. <laughs> Wait a second. You're American. I don't understand. Um, like, we're out in the middle of Somalia. Like there, we're not near a town. Like we're not near anything. We're just out in the middle of the desert. Like how on earth did you find us is kind of what I'm thinking in my head. And um, he says, we've been watching you for a long time and we know how sick you've been. Wow. And he has water, clean water, not laced with gasoline or anything, <laughs> and um, medicine, some tablets. And he hands them to me. And, um, you know, one of them wants to know if I, uh, I can find my shoes. And I'm just, like, completely in shock. Like, I start shaking, like, convulsing. Like, I'm just, I can't stop shaking. Um, and I remember they put, like, um, one of those silver like blankets mm -hmm. around me. Um, and I don't know where my shoes are. And he says, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. And explains that he's going to pick me up, put me over his shoulder. And cause we've got to get out of here, whatever this is. And he does that. And I remember just like my head kind of bobbing, like I'm like fireman style over this soldier's shoulders thinking, I am a school teacher from Ohio. Like, how is this my life right now? Wow. Like, what in the actual heck is this? Did it ever cross your mind that this is something that happens? No. Like, while I was out there? Yeah. Like, that? No. That the mm -mm. No. Paul would say from time to time, like, send in the Marines. And I would get really mad at him because I would be like, Paul, you're Danish. There are like 4 million people mm. in your country. I'm American. There are 350 million people in my country. No one knows we're here. No one cares. Like, not exactly encouraging, but I, I would get so irritated when he would say that. And, um, I was wrong. Wow. Really, really wrong. So they're carrying you. Yeah. You're still probably in shock, mm -hmm. right? Oh yeah. What, what happens next? Where do you go? Where do they take you? What do they say to you? Well, they put me down in a place like uh, in the camp that's deemed safe. My first question is where's Paul did he make it out okay and he's sitting there and he leans over and he says do you know who these guys are and I'm I'm like <laughs> I have no idea what is happening here and he says this is SEAL Team 6 wow these are the guys that got Osama bin Laden mm. and I'm just like okay like I can't wrap my brain around anything right um so we wait for the helicopters to come in uh you know we we make our way to the helicopters that was totally bizarre and weird. Um, they start doing all the medical checks, like, uh, you know, as, as much, as well as they can. I, they didn't know like what 
state we were going to be in health wise. And they also probably didn't know if we would end up being shot. Right. Um, and so, cause I mean, when I say that this is like a point zero 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 one percent chance of like everything going right. I, I, I can't even like qual- quantify it. It's, it is a miracle. Like all of the stars were aligned. Oftentimes military, um, rescue operations it's like a last resort because the hostage doesn't usually come out alive and the fact that I made it out Paul made it out and all of the the soldiers there was no loss of life on the American side it's just like wow it's mind-blowing like a perfect it was a perfect mission wow and I mean I'm not a military expert so I can't but this is what I've heard this is what I've been told um so they take us to a, they land in Galkayo on, on an airfield and then they put us on a bigger plane and explain that they're going to take us to Djibouti, which is the neighboring country. And there's a big American military base there. So we land there in the morning. We've been flying all night pretty much. And, um, we're met by a team of psychologists in the FBI and we get to take a shower, which was a totally weird and bizarre experience after so long, then we start right into like being questioned and they want to extract everything from our brains while it's fresh. Um, and that was exhausting. Um, but you're also like way too charged and keyed up to sleep. And, and I got to talk to my dad and my sister and and my husband for like two minutes. Um, I opted to participate in the hostage reintegration program, which was offered by the Department of Defense. And so um, it's very structured. And uh, I had like a psychologist that was supporting me through the whole thing. Um, They took us to a military base in Italy where I was reunited with my husband. And we were there for about a week. Um, And then we were flown to the U.S. where I was reunited with my dad and my siblings Um, And we spent about a week together. And then um, there was a lot of like going to the FBI headquarters. There were a lot of people to thank and um, a lot of media to hide from. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up, we ended up going back to Kenya because that was really home for us. We had an apartment there. I also found out about a month after the rescue that I was pregnant with my first child, um, which was mind boggling and totally threw me for a loop um but he's 10 and he's amazing now and I think he saved me on some levels too and so there was there was a lot to deal with you know in the aftermath post uh post-traumatic stress disorder pregnancy um figuring out what I how I was going to rebuild my life um it was a lot coming out of this there's a whole I would imagine you just see the world through a completely different lens how did your day-to-day life change I think in some ways I was afraid because my like bubble had been burst that like my bubble of privilege, I think Mm. that, you know, things don't happen. Bad things don't happen to good girls. And that's like embarrassing to admit, but I think it's important. I had always struggled with anxiety, maybe in even in my childhood, but didn't know how to name it. Um, But that definitely kicked up several notches um, combined with trauma and hormones from pregnancy and then new motherhood. Um, It was really hard for me to like extrapolate sometimes what was the kidnapping and what was motherhood that was 
causing so many difficulties in, in my emotional life. Um, it was just a lot to pile on. I think for the good, the things that have changed in the way I see th- my life and, and myself is that I'm no longer afraid to be just with myself. Like, I think that I really, again, like learn, I met myself in that experience. And so I am one of my favorite people to hang out with. I crave that. Um, I also went on this journey where I had to repair my relationship with my intuition um, cause I so, oh, so clearly and just so blatantly ignored her, um, and cut her off, uh, from my, my life. And, and I think for a while I was afraid that maybe that relationship was irreparable, um, but it's not. And I've worked day in and day out to restore that. Trauma survivors, I think would all agree. Like it's a very lonely experience healing. Um, but you know, I, I think that you can agree to that, right? Like you decide that you're worth being in alignment and you're the people that you spend your time with, um, have to be in alignment and they have to understand where you have come from. It's not like you want to sit around and talk about your trauma all day, but like they have to understand as much as they can and give you space for that. And have you learned to use my voice? in a really powerful way. I would not be here doing the the work that I do if this hadn't all happened. And so I wouldn't want to go through it again, that's for sure. But I'm grateful. Uh, You know, and I've thought a lot about this, the difference between intrusive thoughts and intuition, you know, because you're actually the one who like presented that concept to me. It's hard to define like when you feel afraid for your genuine safety And when you feel afraid, I think it's a difference between fear and discomfort, Mm. right? I think intuition is trying to warn you because it's primal. It's, it's meant to keep us alive. And so when you're genuinely like afraid, not uncomfortable, but like scared for your safety, um, of your heart, mind, and soul, I think that's your intuition saying, Hey, I'm doing my job here. Yeah, kind of like I'm keeping that, you alive. That deep gut feeling. Yes. Of like, this isn't really right. Yeah, I can think of some times when that has happened, like with my kids, especially, because, um, you know, I have to like employ my intuition in a different way because I have to protect them, right? right? And then when I'm I'm feeling uncomfortable because I'm being called to sit in something right. and to face something, um. Oftentimes that facing whatever that is, is those intrusive thoughts. And um, my sister said something really good to me this morning of like, I was saying I was feeling triggered about something and and then it like, I'm like actually really angry. She was like, well, yeah, you know, being triggered does make you feel angry. And I think that um, those intrusive thoughts can often, for me, that's how it manifests. You know, I get angry. Um, cause I'm, I'm sick of dealing with this. Right. But I'm often then being called to grow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I would say for me, it's kind of this like, you know, and then I, I get into like the anxiety thing mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it's like, is it an intrusive thought? Is it my anxiety telling me it? Is my ego trying to protect me? Mm-hmm. Is it my intuition trying to protect me? It takes our whole lives to, to learn the difference. And um, it's the most intimate relationship you'll ever develop. Mm. And it just takes practice. And I practice it, you know, sometimes I like get in the car and go somewhere without my maps on to see if like the feeling, like, I think I should go this direction, like, you know, or, um, I will stop and ask myself, like, you know, where should I go for a walk today? Um, and then really checking in with myself and letting myself just like go in wherever the spirit leads, if you will, you know, and I think that that's, that has a lot to do with like developing that relationship with your intuition. Yeah, I agree. I think stopping, I do that a lot with food now mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like, what, what do I even want to eat today? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to eat the lunch that I packed. Let me go get something else. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can practice it in little and big ways all the time. I would have to say that one of the most influential and healing parts of my wellness journey was by far my time at the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. I enrolled in 2020. I was taking a little bit of time off college and it was really just a time in my life where I had so many questions about my body. I originally enrolled because I wanted to know more about nutrition and what food could do for my body, but I graduated with so much more. The program is the broadest and most comprehensive curriculum out there covering seven different categories, physical health, nutrition, mental and emotional health, primary food, spirituality, coaching, and business. And to me, my time at IAN was way more than just a certification. I used the tools I learned in the health coaching training program in my daily life, like how to go into everything with a beginner's mindset active listening skills, and how to put primary foods first. If you know, you know. It's almost like I could embrace coaching as a lifestyle, not just as a job. Graduating from IIN was one of the driving forces behind this podcast. I originally started to talk about food, to talk about health coaching, and it has transformed into so much more. With teachers like Gabby Bernstein, Will Cole, and Melissa Wood, you will learn from the best of the best. The next class starts on July 17th, so don't wait. Grab your spot now. You can use the link in the show notes to try a free sample class, and if you mention my name, Lily Rako, during registration, you will get a very generous enrollment discount. The enrollment team rocks, and they are standing by to answer any and all of your questions, so be sure to click that link in the show notes. I cannot wait to watch you unlock your potential and live a life you love with IIN health coaching training program. I I heard a friend say once, this friend worded it in two ways. When you talk about the hardship, it makes the hardship easier. And um, when you bring light to the darkness, the darkness never wins. And you've done an incredible job of taking your story and making it something that just helps so many people, whether it's your podcast, your books, speaking opportunities, TEDx, at what point did you decide this has to be, I'm going to take this story and make it something that can help others? Well, I think I kind of initially fell into it. Um, there were, you know, I've been lucky and that I've had lots of opportunities that um, have been given to me um, because this was a high profile event and because it involved SEAL Team 6. So it was very like, 
sensationalized. At first, like in the aftermath, I didn't want to talk about it with anybody. People kept asking me about a book and I'm just like, ugh, no, I couldn't even like wrap my brain around that. And then I woke up one morning and I looked at my husband and I said, you know, I think I'm ready to like talk about this because I had two initial like objectives. One, I wanted to write everything down before I forgot Um, especially because I had this baby coming and I wanted to have something for him. Um, And then I wanted to be able to thank everybody. There was there. I mean, it's been 11 years and I bet you once a month, somebody reaches out to me that had something to do with my rescue in some capacity. Like, I mean, when I say thousands of people, I am not exaggerating. Like I can never know the full extent of the work and the time and the effort and the resources that went into getting me back. So it was really important for Eric and I to be able to say thank you in some way. And then I didn't know that, you know, when you write a book like this, that, and then it becomes a New York Times bestseller. Like, I didn't even really know what that meant. You know, I, I, I genuinely wasn't in this for like rebuilding my career. I just wanted to get it done and then, and be done with it. Right. And, but then people started asking me to speak because I didn't know that when you like had a New York Times bestselling book, like then people want you to come and talk about it. So um, I thought, okay, sure. I'll do it for as long as I can, I guess. And, and for a while it felt weird and icky and it felt like vulnerability porn in a way. And I felt like I was a puppet sometimes and being showcased. And, um, I took a break for a couple of years and went back to just traditional teaching and that was fun. Um, and then COVID hit, people started reaching out to me and asking if I would like hop on a zoom and talk to their teams because, they needed to feel inspired and, and COVID was really hard for uh, everybody. And, um, so, you know, I started doing that a little bit more. Um, and like right before all of that happened, I had an opportunity through a series of like, I don't know, just synchronicities to connect with the, the team that rescued me. And I went down to, um, Virginia beach and had a very, very private, very quiet meeting of all these seals. And a lot of them were on my rescue mission and then some of them weren't. Um, but I bet there were like 30 guys at this long conference table and then me, and I just cried the entire time. Oh. Like I, I, I was like so embarrassed, but I just cried the entire time. Um, Cause I just wanted them to know like how much I valued what they gave back to me. And when I left that day, we had lunch and I remember like hugging all of them at the door. And one of them said something to me to the effect of like, you know, Jess, like you're always touting us as the saviors and the badasses, but you're a badass too because you spent 93 days out there and you survived. And I don't think it's like I needed them to tell me that, but also... It gave me permission to tell the story in a different way because I realized that I had been telling the story the way I thought everybody wanted to hear it. And that was like me as the damsel in distress and SEAL Team 6 like swooping in and rescuing me. And here I am like on the stage and, you know, like the blonde girl who, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it felt so inauthentic to me. And after that, I remember walking away from that meeting and I felt like I, I'm a very tall person, but I felt like I'd grown like 10 inches or something. I just felt like I could stand 
with my back straight. And I think a lot of that had to do with just being able to tell them thank you. And, and to, I, I felt like I needed them to see like my kids and, and say like, I'm, I have this beautiful life and I'm doing the best that I can with it. And it's because of you. And I know how much you sacrifice and I know how much your family sacrifice. My brother's a special forces, um, green beret. So I see what that's like. Um, and it changed something in me. And I think from then on, I realized there can be more than one hero in a story. There's room. And I could be a hero in my story too. Um, and I don't say that from a place of ego. I just say that from a place of like healing. And so um, things began to unfold and, and, and I began to get clearer about the meaning, like making, like I said, like you have to make things mean something for me in order to be able to carry it because otherwise it's too hard and too heavy. And, um, I can't just be a person who's like, well, things happen. Like I have to believe that they happen for a reason and I have to attach that. I'm a purpose driven person. And so I've been on this journey of, I guess then figuring out like, what's my next purpose? You know, for a while it was teaching in Africa and, and I lost that, you know, um, I got to keep my life, which I'm eternally grateful for, but I lost my career. We had to leave Africa cause it was just too hard to stay there. And that was, that broke my heart. I didn't know who I was outside of being there. I certainly had not planned to be a suburban soccer mom in Washington, DC, you know, like that, was had, was not the picture of who I thought I was going to be. <laughs> and so um, it was just like this next desert that I had to walk myself out of. Um, and I've, I'm lucky. I, you know, I do, I get that. I, I do, I get opportunities that I think a lot of people would like kill for. Um, and I'm grateful for them. Um but I also work really, really hard and I feel this next chapter for me is about supporting women who have stories that they feel compelled to share. Not everybody feels compelled to share their story and that's okay. But for the ones who do, I, I don't want to see them be roadblocked by logistics in the publishing industry and, um, lack of social media following. I feel like if you are a writer and you feel that it's a part of your like hero's journey or shero's journey to, to come back and tell the village about what you've learned, then um, I'd like to help, help support women do that. And so that's what I do now. So you are currently working. Can I talk about this? You're working yeah. on your third, third book. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the current book that you're working on? Yes. So I have a publishing um, imprint called Soul Speak Press. And we, what we really specialize in is curating anthology um, experiences for uh, memoir writers. So um, we get together like a group of 20 or so women who all have these deserts to mountaintop style stories, right? They've been through something. Now they know something. Now they want to teach us something. And the second volume, the first one was about reclaiming our voice. And because that was so much a part of the last 10 years of my healing 
And the second volume then centers around this idea of radical self-acceptance and choosing healing through accepting ourselves. Um, and I, you know, at first I thought I, at first we were like really focused on reclaiming our bodies. Um, but turns out they're just, there are a lot of women who are not ready to talk about that yet. And I get that. Um, so we've like broadened it to like what that means in body, um, mind and spirit. And I thought I knew what I was going to be writing about. I'm still, I'm not sure now because things are just like always in transition, but I'm really, really focused on what it means to radically accept myself at this stage in my life. You know, I'm, I'm in a different life, um, experience than you are in terms of being older and, and what it means to be like middle-aged and, and a woman. And, and, um, so I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm excited to explore that part of my own writing and then the chapters that have been coming in. Cause we've already some, um, had our first draft submissions. I'm like, just wow. Like what some of these women have survived and how they have overcome and how they've figured out how to be strong enough to accept themselves. Um, is really, really inspiring. So, um, so that'll come out in January of 2024. So exciting. I can't wait to read everybody's stories. It's going to be incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my last question for you, Jess, Mm -hmm. this is something that I do with all my guests. Um, the average age of my listener is 22 to like 23, 24. If you could go back and talk to your 22 year old self, what would you say to her? Your heart always knows. It knows the way. Stop asking everybody else what you should be doing, where you should go, what you should study, who you should like, who you should be with. Your heart always has the answers and you can trust it. Yeah, I spent so much time in that that time in my life just doubting myself and my decisions. And turns out my heart was always right. And so, yeah, that's what I would say beautifully said. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you Jess so much for coming on and sharing your story. You are an incredible human and I'm so grateful that you joined me today and, and that you were willing to share your story. So thank you so much. Um, go ahead and plug yourself, your books, your podcast, your socials, everything. Where can the people find you? Um, okay. So I'm probably on Instagram the most. So that's Jessica C. Buchanan, just my name. And then there's, we do have a soul speak press if you're interested in, um, publishing. And let's see, jessbuchanan.com, deserts to mountaintops.com, and soulspeakpress.com. You can find out about all the projects that I'm into. 